Hi, I'm going to be reading from Isaiah 66, 12 to 16, on page 533 of your Bibles. For this is what the Lord says, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm, and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice, and you will flourish like grass, and the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants. But his fury will be shown to his foes. See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury, and, he will, and his rebuke will fl- with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will exercise judgment upon all men, and many will be those slain by the Lord. I'm reading from Philippians 4 verse 10 to 23, which is page 832 in your pew Bible. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am, I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who strengthens me. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even then, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Okay, we come to our last, our last sermon. Can you do something with this? Okay, I keep talking. We, we come to, we come to our last. I might just use this. We come to our last sermon in the book of Philippians. Um, I have to say, it's one of those letters which has so encouraged me a bit of a Christian word but it has because it's just reminded me where the source of my joy should lie Uh, get rid of all the religious stuff get rid of uh, rituals and 
church services and Christian events and let's bring all back to Jesus because my joy is in him and, and him alone. I've been away for three days this week. I've been preparing uh, sermons for the next sermon series, which is Proverbs. Just spent three whole days from six late in the morning till midnight just working through Proverbs. And again, my heart was just warmed by the power of the Word of God. And part of the reason I do that is so that when I come to preach the Word, I've actually lived it myself. I'm not just preaching week in, week out and applying it as I go. Um, and I came to look at Philippians again, uh, having prepared it earlier, and I thought, oh, I get to preach on my two favorite topics to finish the book. And I do. Philippians 4 contains two of my favorite subjects. I've said before I'd love to write books on these topics because I think we need to hear them again and again and again. And those two topics are contentment and thankfulness. Being content and being thankful. And it's extraordinary that Paul chooses to end this letter of joy with those two themes of contentment and gratitude. Because I reckon we live in an age of, of discontent. We live in an if-only age. I want to start by asking, what is your if-only? If only I had more money, then I'd be content. If only I had a better marriage, then I'd be content. If only I had more time to spend all this money that I'm earning, then I would be content. If only I had more muscles, more hair or less hair, then I'd be content. What is your if only? We have so much. We live in an age of abundance, and yet we're just never, never satisfied. We want more and more and more, but the, but the more is never enough, is it? And so we have, you know, the bigger houses and the faster cars and the better looks dangled in front of our eyes everywhere. And we just want, 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 want. If I had that, if I had that, I want that, I need that. Uh, this church, I spend a lot of time talking to people about relationships. And let me tell you, people are never happy. They're not content being single. And then they start dating. They're not content dating, and so then they get married, and they're not content with the husband they've got or the wife they've got, and they're just never content. And it's not just society that is discontent. Actually, our church, our church is thoroughly discontent. I think we are the advertiser's dream, aren't we? We are the advertiser's dream. According to Google, in Australia you can buy more than 500 different shampoos that claim to give you hair contentment. <laughs> You'll be content with your hair if you just buy this shampoo. Why is it? Why are you discontent tonight? What do you feel is missing from your life tonight? If only you had it, you would be content. This is the second area, and I think they are linked, it is gratitude and thankfulness. Because it's not just that we're discontent, we actually whinge and we grumble all the time. 
we live in one of the most blessed countries in the world. But we still find things to complain about. Uh, we can walk into this church any Saturday, any Sunday, four times on a Sunday if you want to, and you can hear the word of God preached and you can have great fellowship and yet we still find things to complain about or people to complain about. We're not satisfied, we're discontent and we're grumblers. And yet this letter to the Philippians ends with these extraordinary encouragements to be content and to be grateful. Can you remember what the big theme of Philippians is? Joy. Joy. Paul says, if you know Jesus, then you should be full of joy. Let me just flick through the whole letter with you. Chapter 1, verse 4. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with, with joy. Uh, 1, verse 25. I know I will remain, I will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith. 2, verse 17. Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on a sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. And he goes on and on and on and on. 4 verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And here again, 4 verse 10, I rejoice greatly. Do you know the other times where those two, two words come together in the Bible? I rejoice greatly. The shepherds rejoiced greatly when Jesus was born. The disciples rejoiced greatly at the empty tomb. The early Christians rejoiced greatly when the law was added to their number daily. And here, Paul is rejoicing greatly in the Lord. Why? Because of the generosity of these Christians in Philippi. Paul says in chapter 4 verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last... You've renewed your concern for me. When you read the words at last, please don't read it as derogatory. It's not Paul saying, about time too, guys. He's saying, look, I've always known that you had a concern for me. It's just that you had no opportunity to show it. But at last, now you have had opportunity. Now you've, now you've sent this gift to me. Uh, the situation here is that, is that Paul is in prison in Rome and the Philippians have sent a man called Epaphroditus and some money with Epaphroditus and they've had the opportunity to show their concern for him and they've been very, very generous. And Paul says, I'm thankful for that. And what you've got in these last few verses is this amazing connection between your joy and your contentment and your generosity and gratitude. Now let's look at them. You'll only, ha only have joy in Jesus if you do this. Firstly, you learn contentment in all circumstances. Our key verse is verse 12. He says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I read that again. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I know contentment is a really hard subject, but unless you've got that sorted, you will rob yourself of your joy in Jesus. If you go through life discontent, you will rob yourself of your joy in Jesus. I'm thankful that God taught me 
contentment, through tears, through sadness. And he showed me that contentment is actually this deep security and this deep satisfaction that all I need is Jesus. I'll say that again. All I need is Jesus. He could take away everything from me. He could take away my health. He could take away my home. He could take away my job. He could take away my friends. He could take away everything from me and I would still be content because I have Jesus. And that's what we're going to learn tonight. The secret of being content. I love the fact in verse 11 he said it's learned. He says that twice, doesn't he? He says, verse 11, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. And verse 12, I have learned the secret of being content. You see, contentment won't come naturally. You can't just say, oh, God didn't really make me a content person. Oh, that person, they're more content because it's a natural disposition. God teaches us contentment. We learn contentment. It's almost like we have to sit in God's classroom for God to teach it to us. And for 30 long years, for 30 years since he met Jesus on Damascus Road, Paul has been learning contentment. Now think about it. How did Paul learn contentment? It wasn't just by studying the Bible. He learned contentment by God taking him through this classroom of highs and lows. God took him through a shipwreck, through beatings, through torture, through having plenty, through having nothing, for being richly fed, by being starving, and in all these situations, God was teaching him contentment. And I have to say, some of us here, I think, are still in what I call contentment kindergarten. And others of us here are doing a master's degree in contentment. And there is a correlation between those who are willing to go through the trials of life and grow through it and cling on to Jesus through it and the, the depth of their contentment. I remember having a conversation back in the UK with a man who has lost his wife in a car crash. They've been married for less than two years. About five years later, he was interviewed in church. I interviewed him. And he talked about being content in Christ. He said, after the initial shock, I had a choice to face. I could either trust that God was good and that God was sovereign and God was loving and through the pain and through the heart heartache and through the sadness, cling on to him, knowing that he was at work in this. Or... I could be like the rest of the people who I, who I was going through, through bereavement counselling with, who had ended up dependent on drugs, on alcohol, were bitter. I didn't want to be like them. And so I drew closer to my saviour. And I found my security and my contentment in him. We do learn it. Because your contentment is not based on your circumstances. Do you spot that in verse 11? I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Verse 12, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. This is what I find extraordinary. 
Uh, Paul is not lying on a beach, sipping cocktails. He's not sunning it up. He's not enjoying life. He's stuck in a prison cell in Rome, and he can still say, I've learned to be content in any and every situation. He qualifies it in verse 12, whether well-fed or hungry, whether I've had lots or little. What Paul is saying is that if I'm rich, I'm content. If I'm poor, I'm content. If I'm hungry, I'm content. If I'm well-fed, I'm content. And I love the fact that he adds the well-fed and adds the living in plenty. What he's saying is, when I've got everything I could possibly want, I'm content then, not because I've got the stuff, because I know the stuff doesn't really matter, but has God blessed me with great riches? Well, I'm content because I can think, thank you, Lord, how can I give this away? If I've got a a well-fed stomach, I say, thank you, Lord, thank you for providing for me. Now, who can I be generous with today? And if I'm in the opposite situation, when I've got nothing and I'm poor and I'm hungry, I can say, I'm content, Lord, that you will provide for me. I do reckon, actually, when we're in need and when we're in plenty, we need to keep on saying, Lord, what are you teaching me here? How how am I going to learn contentment when you give me everything I wanted? That's a dangerous question to ask because he'll teach you how to learn contentment in those situations. we, We have perfectly adequate homes. You have wardrobes full of clothes. You have the latest gadgets the latest apps on your iPhone, and in the midst of that, you've got to say, Lord, how are you teaching me to be content here? Because the secret of being content is not in your gadgets, it's not in your property, it's not in your plenty or, or, your, or your longing. The secret is there in verse 13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That's contentment. It lies in Christ. I know verse 13 is your classic kitchen calendar verse that's misquoted and taken out of context all the time. You know, what I saw online was a picture of a strong lion standing on this rock overlooking this city with the verse written, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That's not what this verse means. Paul is not saying I can do anything in life. The, the key word is there is everything through him or literally in him. I can do everything that God asks me to do because I'm in Christ and he is the one who strengthens me. Whatever circumstance God puts me in, I can do that because I know Christ and he will strengthen me. Is God asking me to be rich? I can do that. Is God asking me to be poor? I can do that. Is God asking me to stay single for the rest of my life? I don't like that, but I can do that because I'm in Christ and he strengthens me to do that. Is God asking me to face real grief in life? I don't like that, but I can do that because I'm in him who gives me strength. Do you get it? If you're in Christ, if you've sheltered under the cross, if you've been washed with his blood, if you know his refuge and his strength and his empowerment, whatever God asks you to do, you can do it. Because you're in him and he will strengthen you in that situation. And when you've understood that, that is the secret of being content. You're trusting in the one who will strengthen you to do whatever he assigns you to do in life. 
You don't know what God's going to ask you to do in the next 12 months, next two years, next 10 years. But whatever he asks you to do, you'll be content in that because you know the one who will strengthen you in the midst of it. Am I making sense? It really is linked back to Paul's key phrase in chapter 1, verse 21. Remember it? For me to live is Christ. Because if you put for me to live is money, you will never be content. Because what happens when the stock markets crash or, I don't know, you just lose all your money? If, if you put there for me to live is my ripped body and my beautiful looks, you'll never be content because you're going to get old and you get flabby and grey hairs and wrinkles and you won't look beautiful all the time. For me to live is marriage. You won't be content. Your spouse might walk away and one of you will die before the other and you'll be single again for me to live is pleasure you'll never be content because life isn't like that whatever you put in that for me to live is if it's anything apart from Christ you will not be content That's the beauty of Christian contentment. It's not about self-sufficiency. It's not about self-satisfaction. It's not about wanting more and more and more. It's saying, I have got everything that I need because I've got Christ. Christ is all I need. Someone said this. It's a very challenging statement. If Christ is not enough for you, you'll never be content. If Christ is not enough for you, you will never be content. Let me flip that over to the positive. Jesus is enough for you. Jesus is enough for you. He's all you need. He's sufficient. He's your strength. And so whatever circumstance God places you in, whether you're lonely or sad or happy or ill health or disappointed or rejoicing, you can do everything because you've got Christ. And he will strengthen you. Whatever God sovereignly allows to happen in your life, submit to him, find your joy in him, and be content in Christ. Here's another challenging quote. I may not have the job I want. I may not have the house I want. I may not have the marriage I want, or the child I want, or the friends I want, or the family I want but I have Christ and he is all I need. Learn to be content in all circumstances. Otherwise you'll be robbed of your joy. The second one is this. Display gratitude for Christian generosity. Learn to be grateful for what God has given you. Look at verse 14. It was good of you to share in my troubles. Just because Paul is content, he doesn't mean he's not grateful for what the Philippians have done. You see, you can read verse 11 as a bit of a, a knockback. And they've given him money. But he says, verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I didn't need your money. But verse 14 is saying, but it was still good of you to share in my troubles. 
I'm thankful that you demonstrated your partnership in the gospel by actually showing practical concern. See, for them, being partners with Paul in the gospel wasn't just a photo on the wall. They actually put it into practice. It was a genuine, warm, practical care. He says in verse 15, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, so when they first became believers, when Paul was kicked out of Philippi, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. That's extraordinary. He was only there for three weeks in Thessalonica, but they, they found a way of getting money to him to help the gospel work. Let me say the, the, the generosity, not just money, but the way that you use whatever God has blessed you with, your time, your talents, your skills, your, your money, your generosity is actually a, a mark of the spirit at work in you. It's a mark of Christian repentance. When you see the transforming power of the gospel in people's lives, when you see them impacted by, by Jesus Christ, then they want to give to gospel work. Remember Zacchaeus, when he met Jesus? Utterly transformed. Gave away money. And I have seen it here. I've seen lives transformed by the gospel. And you just see it in their generosity. Uh, they give up their, their Sunday morning brunch to come and do kids' church. They give up their Saturday evenings to come to church because they actually want to serve here and they want to meet with other believers. Uh, they give up uh, their, their Saturday mornings to go and help in a refuge center. Uh, they give whatever they earn to support missionaries in different parts of the world or here in Sydney. It's just the power of the gospel. That when they've met Jesus, you're never the same again. And whatever you give, whatever your generosity is, look at verse 18. Uh, Paul says, end of verse 18, uh, are the gifts, that are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice is pleasing to God. The gifts that the Philippians sent to Paul are a fragrant offering and an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. They're an aroma pleasing in God's nostrils. It's the language of Leviticus, isn't it? Do you remember Leviticus from last year? He's not talking about the sin offering, where the priest takes that sin offering and burns it so there's forgiveness. He's talking about the offering that the, that the worshippers give back to God as a thanksgiving offering. God, you've given us so much. Let me give this back to you as a little thank you. You don't need it. It's just a mark that I am thankful for what you've given me and I want to give back to you. It's my, it's my birthday on Tuesday. And I know that on Tuesday morning, Sam will come running into the bedroom. And he'll give me a gift, wrapped up. And I could just sit there and think, it was my money that paid for that gift. And it was my money that bought that wrapping paper, and it was my money that bought that card. He doesn't earn any money. But I don't. No matter what he gives me, I've got this, this big grin on my face, and I'm happy and I'm thankful, and, and he's happy to give to me. And it's that attitude towards giving, you know? Everything that you've got comes from God. He owns everything. He's given everything to you. You, you earn nothing. 
It's just using it with that attitude of, I want to please him. And it does please God. It's an aroma pleasing in his nostrils when we are generous towards gospel work. It's not just about generosity. These verses are about gratitude. Because Paul is thankful. Verse verse, uh, 14, it was good of you to share. Verse 10, I rejoice greatly that you've needed a concern for me. There's nothing worse than ingratitude, is there? When I was interviewing for an assistant pastor last year, one of the people I interviewed said they wouldn't take this job because the housing wasn't sufficient for them. I'm thinking, that is deeply ungrateful. (laughs) We're giving you housing. You might not get a backyard, but you've got a house. (laughs) Or the missionary who complains about not being able to buy the latest iPad. You're thinking, why are you doing what you're doing? But I do see it in us as well that we're just ungrateful for whatever God gives us. We're ungrateful for the people who sit in the pews around us. We're ungrateful for the person who serves coffee to us in the coffee break. We're ungrateful for all these little things. We never say thank you. And a mark of being transformed by the gospel and living for Christ is that we learn to say thank you. Thank you for serving. Thank you for giving. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your support. As Nick said tonight, thank you for the way you encourage me. And of course, gratitude can be manipulated. We can all manipulate gratitude. I want to thank you so that in some way I have control over you. I want to thank you, but it's not sincere, you know. I just want to sort of just suck up to you. Paul is not thanking them because he wants to suck up to them. He's thanking them because of verse 17. He says, not that I'm looking for a gift. I didn't need your money. You could have given me 10 bucks or 1,000 bucks. I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. What he's saying there is saying, I'm really thankful for your generosity because your generosity is a proof to me that the Spirit's at work in you. Your generosity is a proof to me that the God who began a good work in you is still carrying that on. I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. Because I see you, you growing in Christ by your generosity. I just wonder whether there's people here tonight who need to learn to be more thankful. Because it comes with a promise. When you display gratitude for, for generosity, there's a promise there. It's in verse 19. Look at it very carefully. And my God will meet all my needs doesn't say that, does it? Paul is saying, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. As the Philippians gave, as they were generous, the promise here is that Paul's God and my God and your God will meet all your needs. Not all your wants, but all your needs. See, God has lavished us with his riches in Christ. He's given us everything that we need to know Jesus. He's more than sufficient for your daily provisions. 
I don't see people here without food or shelter or clothing. You might not have what you really, really want, but you've got everything you need because you've got Christ. And your God will meet all your needs, no matter how much you give and how generous you are. I love this letter because it's really reminded me of where my joy lies. And my joy is all about Jesus. So I want to end by asking you, is Jesus your joy? Is the Lord Jesus Christ your one true joy? Is he the place that you run to? Is he the one that you serve? Is he the one that you adore, depend on? Can you, like Paul, say, for me to live is is Christ? And so to die is gain because I get to see him face to face. What will rob you of your joy? Lack of contentment and ingratitude. But when you turn that around, when you can say, I've learned to be content in every situation, then your joy is in Jesus. And when you can say, thank you, thank you, thank you for all this generosity, then your joy is in the Lord Jesus. Friends, I pray that Jesus would be your joy. Let me pray. Our Lord God and our Heavenly Father, we we praise you and we thank you for our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you for his blood that was shed, for his humility, his obedience. We thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you that one day we will see him face to face. Lord, please teach us contentment. Whatever you have to take us through in that classroom, Lord, please teach us to be content in every situation. And thank you for all that you have blessed us with. Please help us to be generous. Generosity flowing from our love for you, Lord. And fill our hearts with deep, deep gratitude. Ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen.